Well, go ahead and open up your Bible to Isaiah chapter 29. We again are picking up where we have left off in our study through the, the prophet Isaiah. And again, if you haven't been with us, uh, there's a Bible around you that you can find that in that Bible. Uh, and uh, the page number is 530 to find Isaiah, then jump forward to chapter 29. And uh, this morning we're going to talk about the humbling work of God. And I want to start with kind of giving you a, a bigger view of the Bible as we start to then hone in on chapter 29. If you read the Bible cover to cover, you will find that there are several reoccurring themes throughout the Bible. And there's a, there's a lot of different themes that keep coming up again and again throughout this uh, library of books that you have in front of you that we call the Bible. Now, in every book of the Bible, you'll find a theme that, uh, that shows up, and this theme that we're going to talk about this morning is, again, throughout all of these different books of the Bible, and it is the theme of humility and the need for humility. We are reminded of this constantly, and we're also reminded as to why we need humility. People, maybe you've, you've heard of them, uh, are prideful and arrogant, this is true, I think, of everyone. Uh, this, though, shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't be prideful, we shouldn't be arrogant because of who God is. Now, when people elevate themselves in their pride, they are denying the Creator, and they are denying His rightful authority over their life and His rightful position that He has. And so, what they are doing is attempting to overthrow Him, and this is why God is not just disgruntled with the prideful, but He hates it. He has a deep-rooted hatred for the prideful. Now, when we understand who God actually is, we start to understand how we actually compare to Him. And this is a terrifying thing to really view yourself in light of really who God is. And it should drive us, as we start to understand who He is, to a place of humility. A right view of God will bring about a right view of self, and out of that right view of self, it should lead to humble submission to Him. Now, the problem that everyone faces on this earth is that we are all filled with pride and as a result of that pride, we are all rebels against God. Or, you want to put it in kind of this terminology, we are in a cosmic treason against God. The highest level of authority, we are trying to overthrow Him. Now, again, we don't usually think that way in realms of, you know, a slight prideful moment in our life, or maybe it's a lifestyle of, of pride and arrogance. We don't, don't usually think that way, but that is the truth of what this reoccurring theme tells us through Scripture. The entirety of the Bible is dealing with this fundamental issue of prideful people that are in conflict with a perfectly holy God. This is a gigantic problem. And when we talk about things that don't mix, we kind of use terminologies like oil and water, right? We, we use that as like, these are two things, they don't go together, they don't coexist. And this is the same thing about pride and humility. They cannot be mixed. They do not coexist. This is something, again, that we are confronted with in Scripture. 
This is also true about everyone's relationship with God. If we are filled with pride, then we cannot have a right relationship with God. There is a disconnect with Him because of the pride that is in us. And as Scripture repeatedly tells us, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He wants nothing to do with the proud because they are contradictions to who He is. So the theme of how God will deal with the proud, it is highlighted once again in chapter 29 of Isaiah. I'm going to break this chapter down into three parts, three sections, and I'll give you the outline right here. We will see the humbling work of God in the first section. The next section, we'll see the human condition. And then last of all, we'll see spiritual transformation. And so it starts heavy and ends on a very positive note. And so the the first section of this is in verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 8, we see the humbling work of God. Look at verse 1 with me. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feast run there round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voices shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of of the ruthless like passing chaff, and in an instant suddenly... You will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night, as when a hungry man dreams and behold, he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied." Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. Now this chapter opens in a strange way. It opens with a name given to Jerusalem that is not mentioned anywhere else. Ariel is the name. Now, scholars are not 100% sure what it actually means, and this place is the only place in which it's used, with the exception of one place in Ezra. Now, scholars, they think that it might mean lion of God or lioness of God, but again, they're unsure. But what they are sure of is how it is used here in Isaiah, that it is in reference to Jerusalem, the city. Now, in Ezra, it is used to name a person. But that is the only place in which this name is used. So at the onset of this chapter, what it should do to the first century audience, or to, the, to this century, uh, of, of which Isaiah is writing to, being Judah, their ears should perk up whenever he uses this term, Ariel. Because it's unusual, it's odd, it seems strange that he would, he would use this kind of word. 
So he's engaging them at a different level than maybe what they have been engaged with before in reference to this city. The city that is supposed to be a foundation of peace, as we've already established the meaning of Jerusalem to be. Now, Isaiah once again foretells the future of Jerusalem and described what Assyria, uh, this threat to the, the northeast of them, is going to do. But the outcome is not what is expected by Jerusalem, nor what is expected by Assyria. Both of them, both of them, when this happens, they think, yeah, it's coming to an end for Jerusalem. But the armies of Assyria... They will surround the city as what has been predicted and is predicted here. They will besiege the city. They will cut off anything that the city could could receive as aid to themselves. But in the midst of that besieging, God will intervene. And what will God do? Well, He will slaughter 185,000 Assyrian troops in one night and send Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, back to his palace and never to come again against Jerusalem. But I I want to point out something that is of detail here that reveals God's work and God's purposes with this. Notice verses 2 and 3. Notice the words that are used here. It starts in verse 2, yet I will, and we see this repeated in verse 3 as well, I will, I will. Well, who, who is speaking here? God is God is the one who is promising to encircle Jerusalem. He is the one promising to besiege the city. And maybe you're thinking, but wait, I thought Assyria was the one that did that. True, they are. They did. Yes, Assyria does do that. But who takes credit for what happens? Well, right here, God does, which is implying to us that our understanding of how things work in this world must be understood, not simply from man's perspective, but from God's perspective, a higher perspective, because he is ultimately in charge. Now, did the Assyrians come up against Jerusalem? Yes, historical fact. Did God make that happen? Again, yes, a historical fact. Now, what we have here is a compatibilistic understanding of how things work in this world. And I, myself, am a compatibilist. Maybe you're like, I've never heard that word before. Let me define what what I mean by that. I mean that I believe that God is sovereign over every single thing. And, And I am also responsible for what I do or don't do. A compatibilist. I am a compatibilist because I believe this is what is consistently taught throughout the Scriptures. And here is yet as I would point to another text that I think would point me in that direction. Now, if what happens to Jerusalem in the besieging work of the Assyrians, if it were merely, merely the decisions of the Assyrian king and his armies, void of God's involvement and directing, what then does that mean about Isaiah 29, 2 and 3? Well, I, I think that would mean that God could not claim that He does this in verses 2 and 3. So the Assyrian king plans to overtake the city. This is his plan. This is what he intended to do. This was in his heart. This was his desire. The, the, the city being surrounded and all of what is anticipated by the Assyrians and the people in Jerusalem of what is about to happen, they see this plan playing out. But... 
The king's plans will not succeed. Why? Because they are not God's plans. They cannot happen because God is in conflict with the king's plans, which is what is explained here in these verses. What was God's plan for Jerusalem? What was God doing? What is God talking about here in in chapter 29, 1 through 8? What is His purpose? It is to humble them. It is to humble Jerusalem with His invading army and to prove to them once again that He is the sovereign Lord of all. As He's been referred to through Isaiah already and in many other places in the Bible, He is the Lord of hosts, meaning Lord of armies. Armies, plural. He is the one that can be trusted because He's over all of these. And what were God's plans for the Assyrians? Well, to use them to humble Jerusalem and then to humble them by destroying their army. So God used the proud to attack the proud all for the purpose of humility. Humility. Now, we might be facing a situation right now in our lives that we are only seeing as we look out of our personal city. We, we look out and all we see is an army that has encircled us and we are terrified and we're thinking, what's going to happen next? We, we hear the plans of somebody else and think, oh no, what's going to happen? We're distraught, we're worried. And then what do we start to do? Well, we're trying to strategize and plan our escape. We try to negotiate out of the situation when we should be seeing things from God's perspective. And we need to humble ourselves before our Creator. He is allowing and orchestrating these things in our life so that we will see Him for who He really is. And who is He? The Sovereign Lord of all, and He can be trusted. Humility needs to be our response to these situations. If you're in one of these situations right now, this needs to be your response. Maybe you've been asking the question, what what does God want from me in this moment? Humility. That's the answer. Humility is what He wants from you. He wants you to trust Him in that humility. And maybe you're feeling completely overwhelmed by something at home, something at school, something in your job, in your relationships, and you're feeling like there's no way I'm, I'm encircled. There's no way I can escape this. That's exactly how Jerusalem felt. It's exactly what God wanted them to feel. And then what did God prove to them? I can be trusted. Don't trust yourself. Quit trusting in Egypt. Quit trusting in some other negotiation tactic that you have. Trust in me. Trust in the Lord's provision in the midst of the situation. And to, in order to trust Him, you have to be humble. He welcomes humility, but He rejects pride. Now, these things that you might be facing, they are for your good. And the good God is aiming at for you is your confession of needing Him in that thing. Whatever that thing is, whatever you're dealing with right now, what you need is Him. And He wants you to confess that. And this is true. All the time we need Him. 
when you see the army that is encircling you, let me, let me give you three things that I think can be helpful for you, for you to think through and pray through. So maybe you're in the midst of this situation right now. Let me give you three things that I think are quite helpful for your thought process and your prayer life. Three things. One, has this been brought on by my sin and my pride? Ask yourself that question. Pray through that question. Has this situation right now that I'm facing, is it because I have sinned against God? Why was Jerusalem in that situation? Because they had sinned against God. It was because of their pride. Second thing, what needs to change in my life right now? What did Jerusalem need to change in their life? To humble themselves before God. This is what they needed to do. And maybe there's some other tangible, physical thing, and, and not just kind of a, in a concept spiritually, but maybe there's something very, very practical in your life right now that's like, oh, that thing, it's got to go. It needs to change right now. And number three, what is God going to prove about himself in this moment? Pray through that question. What is God going to prove about who he is? And what this is doing is taking, taking your pride, your selfishness, your, your consuming thought about yourself and moving it to a God-like perspective. Confessing what is true and right about who you are and also who God is. And so if you're in the middle of this in, encampment around you and you feel in, in, engulfed by chaos or whatever's happening, pray through these things. Confess the situation to God and, and ask that he would, he would humble you and you would see Him for who He is. This is God's humbling work in your life. It's what He's doing for you right now. And maybe you don't see it that way because of the pain, because of the struggle, because of all, all the burden that is on you, but, but trust me as you trust God. He is doing this for your good. Let me take you to the next section of this chapter in verses 9 through 16. We see an explanation of the human condition. Look at verses 9 through 16. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your head, the seers. And the vision of all that, is, that has become to you like, a, like the words of a book that is sealed when men give it to one another. Uh, who can read, saying, read this? He says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this? He says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden." Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? There are three things that I want to point out to you in this section. 
that are problems that are there in Jerusalem, the problem with the people in Jerusalem, but I also think that there are applications here to really all of mankind with these three things. These are all part of the human condition that must be overcome, and they must be overcome in order to have a right standing with God. For you to be seen as righteous before Him, these three things need dealt with. The first being spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. In verses 9 and 10, Isaiah, he makes the point that his message, it's not being received. The people are not listening. They are not listening, not seeing, because they are spiritually blind. They themselves have hardened their heart against God. They, they do not see. But also what has happened here, as verse 10 points out, is that the Lord has blinded them. Now, this is something that we see, again, in several places in Scripture. This is, again, one of those themes that pops up again and again. In the Lord, He sends a blindness to them as an act of judgment upon them. He, as it says there in verse 10, He pours upon them a deep sleep. Why? So they won't see. And our question will be asked at this point, either by you or by your friend, well, is God just to do such a thing? Is that evil of him to do such a thing that he would, he would close up their eyes that they could not see? Hmm. Of course he is. Of course he's just. Why? Because they are sinners who have rejected him and, and they are filled with pride. Of course he's just to do such a thing. And the real question that really needs to be asked either by yourself or to your friend is why does God open the eyes of anyone and save anyone? Are people not eternally guilty before him because of the rebellion? Yes. Yes, they are. And the reason God saves any is because it pleases him to do so. He loves to show mercy. He loves to show grace. And he takes pleasure in that. When I say he loves to do it, I mean, he, like, he gets excited about showing mercy. He loves to do this. And who does he do it to? Sinners. Now, Paul points this out in Romans chapter 11 as what was read earlier from that passage later on in that chapter. I want to point you earlier in to verses 7 and 8 of Romans 11, where we learn this from Paul about God's prerogative to save some and then to pass by others. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So who deserves to be saved? Well, as Paul points out, and I think as other passages throughout the Bible point out, is that no one, according to the Bible, no one deserves it, because if they deserved it, then it wouldn't be grace, would it? For all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, as Paul writes, so God, He is doing nothing evil here. Nothing evil. Nothing mean-spirited by giving people a spirit of stupor or deep sleep, as Isaiah says. It is an act of divine judgment, and it is good, and it is right for Him to do such a thing. 
and he can do as he pleases. Now, he can't be in contradiction to himself, and he is not in this moment. He has a purpose behind it all. Everything has a purpose behind it. Now, we may not understand it. How many of you have been in a situation where you know God is doing something, but you have no clue what he's doing? That's all of you? Come on. You need to heighten your spiritual awareness here, I think. He is doing something. He's always doing something. You're sleeping at night, what's he doing? Working. Now, sorry, this is completely a tangent. In thinking about sleep, because I haven't slept well the last few days, and so I've, I've given a lot of thought about sleep the last few days. Isn't it strange how the strongest and mightiest of individuals are completely helpless and hopeless when they sleep? Right? They can do nothing. They're defenseless. Hmm. Do you think God may, maybe had designed us that way, that we would understand something about ourselves as just human beings, that we are truly helpless, and that we need sleep? And maybe you won't be able to sleep tonight because of that thought. I don't know, but we need Him. We, we need Him constantly. We, we, we need to see that He has purpose for all things. But they were spiritually blind. The second thing I think is in this section of the chapter is that they had detached worship. Detached worship. Another part of the human condition that must be overcome is detached worship. Now Isaiah explains to them that they have acted really unconcerned. They have acted in apathy. They have acted unenthusiastically about God. They're full of this attitude to the Word of God and His clear warning, warnings to them to repent and to turn back to Him, to trust Him. And they've kind of shrugged it off as we, as we heard last week in chapter 28 where they went, yeah, blah, 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 yada, 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 whatever. Isaiah tells them in verse 13 basically the same thing he did in chapter 1. If you remember chapter 1, the words that were there, it's almost exactly the same thing. They say one thing, they do another. Their hearts are far removed from honoring God. They might do all of the right things in practice, but they are emotionally detached from loving God. Their religion has become empty, it is vain, which is a pretty good description or definition of hypocrisy. Saying that you believe something about God, but never truly living your life as though it is true. It doesn't matter how perfect you are in your doctrines or in your theology if you don't actually live by it. It doesn't matter how perfect you are in executing all of the traditions of Scripture if you don't have a loving relationship with God. It doesn't matter. God wants your heart, and with your heart, He has all of you. He's got your mind, he's got your hands, he's got your, your mouth, he's got your feet, if he's got your heart. And because, because of this, your source of desire, your direction of life, it will be different. 
If your love for God is non-existent, then of course you're not going to do what He wants you to do. Of, of course you will ignore what He's told you to do. Of course you will act just like these people, detached from Him in your worship. I've had far too many conversations with people who say that they, they want to follow God and they, they want to do what God wants them to do. And then knowing them, I, I point to just a few things I see in their life as inconsistencies or hypocrisies that are happening. And it seems to be from those things that they're actually rejecting the direction that God wants for them. And they leave the conversation continuing to do the same things. There's no lifestyle changes because there's no heart change. They say they want to honor God, but the evidence from their life is actually what they want, not what God wants. And Paul tells us that we are to be a living sacrifice to the Lord, which means that every day is a day to display your trust in Him and your love for Him. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice to God that you display through how you go to work, of how you treat your family, your friends, of how you pay your taxes? All of these things are a way that you can display how much you really love God, how much you really trust God. As Jesus said repeatedly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Evidence of real love is in what do you do? What do you do with your life? And this kind of detached worship, it, it's really, at the core of it, let's call it something else, it's a false worship. It's not real. It's fake. It operates with this mindset that God is our servant. And if we do a few things the right way at the right time, then God has to serve me. And then... When that doesn't work, what do we do with God? We get angry, we get bitter, we get frustrated, we get mad because He didn't serve me the way that I wanted to be served at the time I wanted to be served. And we say, well, didn't I do all these things the right way? Didn't I say the right things? Didn't I go to the right places? Didn't I treat people the right way? God, why would you do this to me? And we don't realize we have been detached from him in our relationship. And we think of him more as a genie or a vending machine than as the sovereign God of all. A third thing that we find in this section is self-centered wisdom. Self-centered wisdom. This is the third issue of the human condition. In verses 15 and 16, Isaiah points out the foolishness of people and their thinking the darkness of the human heart makes statements like these that we find here in 15 and 16. Who, who sees us? Who knows us? He did not make me. He, he has no understanding. The human heart rejects the distinctiveness of God. It, it rejects the sovereignty of God. It rejects the wisdom of God. And why is this the case? Well, this goes back to the reason why God is encircling Jerusalem. It is their pride. Why do people think this way? Their pride. Now, now the picture that is painted for us in these verses uses clay and the potter as an example. Where the, where the clay would say to the potter, I don't need you. You didn't make me. Now, how foolish is that? 
How backwards is that? And isn't this how we do things? I don't, I don't need you. I don't need God in my life. Let me, let me give you five things that I think are helpful to identify if you are living in self-centered wisdom. You can try to write these down. I didn't make a slide for you, so forgive me. Maybe I was being self-centered in that. One thing, what's an evidence of self-centered wisdom? Well, I think one being that you deny God's involvement in your life. Something happens, you say, oh, well, I did that. I accomplished that. I, I made that happen. And you reject the fact that God is actually in your life, doing something in your life. Like, why did he bring you here today? You say, well, I brought myself here today. God didn't do it. Hmm. You might want to reevaluate. The second thing is that somebody would scoff at God's word, like chapter 28 that we saw. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Whatever he says. I know the Bible says that. I know it teaches that. I know that's the direction that I should be going. But whatever. A third thing is that not only do you scoff at God's word, but you scoff at everyone. Everyone. You scoff at books, you scoff at experts, you scoff at leaders, you scoff at your neighbor, you scoff at your spouse, you scoff at everyone because you think that you're some sort of exception to the rule, that you're wiser, you're smarter, you you have more experience, and you scoff at everyone. A fourth thing, that in conversation you wait for an opening in the conversation so that you can insert your thoughts because your thoughts are better than their thoughts. The whole conversation is moving in a direction maybe it's completely opposite of where you want to take it. So you try to find a way that you can turn it to benefit you or be centered around you and your thoughts because you have better thoughts. And I think with that, there's this other kind of idea that shows up that you have to win or at least make sure the other person loses in an argument. And you can have that mindset like you, you always try to win, you always try to get the last word, and you feel like justified in those last words that you said. But maybe you're confronted with somebody that does just a better job of arguing with you or debating with you. And so then you take the position of, well, if I can't win, nobody wins. And you just bombard them with all kinds of things that derail and distract from really progress in the conversation. It's because of self-centered wisdom. Self-centered wisdom is being occupied by oneself and by one's own thoughts. This is what consumes you, is yourself. Self-centered wisdom, it smothers humility. And it chokes out the opinions of others. So, the first two-thirds of this chapter, maybe you're feeling like it's pretty heavy stuff here. Like, this feels pretty hopeless, kind of in this condition. Like, God is bringing a humbling work to the people. He, He is then highlighting the condition of the people. There's not much hope here. But this is not where it ends. The ending addresses how the human condition is overcome and the proof that it has been overcome. Let's look at that. Verses 17 through 24. Is it not yet a very little while? 
until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man out to be an, <clears throat> an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. There, therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst They will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel and those who go astray in spirit will come to to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. Now there's two ways, two ways in which I think Isaiah and, and God here point to spiritual transformation. This is where we end, spiritual transformation. And there's two ways in which he points this out, one being a metaphor, the other being history. Let's look at the first one, verses 17 through 21, we have a transformed landscape, a transformed landscape. He uses Lebanon as his his metaphor here. Lebanon is known for their forest, even today they are known for their forest, and not for fruitful fields. It's not how they're described. But here, there's a promise from God that He's going to change the landscape landscape of Lebanon from a forest to a fertile field that produces fruit. Now, I'd like you to consider for a moment the amount of work it takes to create a fertile field out of a forest. At my house, I have a, a, a whole bunch of these black willow trees. And I believe they are killing my pond. So, I have a mission to get rid of all of them. I mean, I have like a hatred in my heart toward these trees. And so, <clears throat> I am on mission to get rid of these trees, and it takes me some time to get rid of these trees, but cutting down the tree and hauling off the brush to a burn pile, that is not the hard part. The hard part is getting the stump out of the ground, right? Now, in our day, we have these machines that make it Pretty easy to just pop the stump right out of the ground. That there's hardly any work that needs to be done on your part to do it. It just pops it right out of the ground and hauls it off. But this is not the case in Isaiah's day. Think here, as as God is telling the people, here's what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to rip out all of these trees and all of the stumps, and I'm going to create a field that is fertile. What do you have to do in that time period to make that happen? You have to dig around the tree, cut out the roots, and then pop out the stump. This is extremely labor-intensive and time-consuming. But notice verse 17. What does God promise? Is it not yet a very little while? What did God just say there? All of this work that you think it's going to take to make these massive changes will take no time at all. Why? Because of who He is. 
this imagery of a forest being completely transformed is exactly what God is going to do to the human heart that is spiritually blind, that is detached in worship, that is self-centered in wisdom. He is going to transform that heart. And Isaiah goes on the next few verses to talk about the, the deaf hearing and the blind seeing, which is only possible through the miraculous work of God. And notice verse 19, the similarities of how Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. Notice the, the comparison that can be made here. The meek and the poor in spirit are the ones who will take part in the kingdom of God. Meaning those who are humble of heart towards God. These are the ones that will be welcomed into the kingdom. In their humility, they find, according to verse 19, look at that, fresh joy. Fresh joy, as the ESV says. Not stale joy, old joy, but fresh joy. It, I mean, that's exactly how I like my joy. It's fresh, right? Like you pop the top on the joy can and poof, right? Like it's, it's fresh. You know it's fresh. And maybe you, maybe you don't like your joy that way. Maybe how you like your joy is kind of a crusty kind of a joy. And, and it, it, you like it that way because of the prideful state of your heart. And you just kind of, it's, you know, it's all that bitterness that makes it crusty and that's how you really prefer it. Or maybe you prefer just like a tired joy because of the mechanical religious activity that has really detached you from God in your relationship. Maybe that's how you like it. Or, or possibly you prefer a stale joy that is of self-centered wisdom. And hopefully you're catching my sarcasm. How do we have fresh joy? We have the answer here. It is only found in the Lord. It is only found in Him and what He can do in your heart. So humble yourself before Him today. Do you want fresh joy? Who's going to say no to that? Then what do you need to do? Humble yourself before God. Confess these things to be true of your condition. And what will he do? He will take this forest that is all of these problems of your life and he'll just rip them suckers up and get rid of them. And he will give you a fertile field full of fruit. It is a fresh joy that he will give. But again, it doesn't end here. Verses 22 and through 24, we have the end of this chapter with a history lesson pointing to why will spiritual transformation happen because of history. We have God's providential work being explained to us. What evidence is there that God will perform spiritual transformation and bring it to completion? Where does He go? Who does He point to? Abraham. Abraham is His example, followed by Jacob. The Lord's providential work of spiritual transformation, it is proven because of Abraham and God's eternal intention of completing the work in which he started with him. Jacob is mentioned here as another proof of God's providential work. And as he is referred to as having been ashamed and his face growing pale, maybe you read that like, what does that mean? 
It means because of his watching the failings of his children and his grandchildren, and he felt the threat of forfeiting the promises of God in them. He felt ashamed. But in verse 23, notice the phrase, the work of my hands. How would the promises of God be fulfilled with all the failings of the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren of these fathers of Israel? It is the work of God that the promise is maintained. It is the work of God that maintains that. He is the source of their security in the promise. It is because of Him that they will sanctify His name, that they will stand in awe of God. It is because of Him and what He does. How does this apply to you? Well, Christian, I want you to think about who brought the gospel message to you. Think, think about who that person was, okay? Get them in your head. Now, then I want you to think about who might have brought that message of the gospel to them. Who brought them to faith? Maybe you know, maybe you don't know. Maybe it was like your dad that brought you to faith and like you knew it was like his dad. Well, I want you to go even further back if you can and think about, well, who was the one that brought them to faith? And what I want you to start doing in your mind is try to think back as far as you can to, well, how did all of this happen? How did God bring this about in my life? Well, the faith that you have today is not because of you. That's one reality. It's not because of you. It's because of what God has been doing in the lives of people in past generations, which is the point that the Lord is making to Jerusalem through Isaiah. Jerusalem, listen. Why will God preserve you? Abraham, Jacob, look at the promises. Look at how he's been faithful. He's done amazing work. An amazing work of maintaining the promise, even though there was tremendous failures on the part of these children. He made promises, and He will be faithful to those promises. And this is the best news that we can hear today. This is the best news we can hear, because the reality is, we are kept by His faithfulness. Amen. That's why we're kept in our faith. It's Him. In verse 24... Look back there in verse 24. It describes two aspects of a transformed life. Well, how do I know if I have a transformed life? Here, here's two, two things that we can look at. Let me read this again. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. Two aspects of a transformed life. First being that the wayward are now steady. The ones that were far off and, and wandering all around and in just chaos... It's now a steady life, transformed from being restless and fickle and lacking purpose to focused, reliable, and a meaningful life. The instability of being lost without a Savior has been radically changed into a stable life of security in the Lord. How did that happen? The work of His hands. The second thing is that we find the critical are now teachable. The critical are now teachable. 
So those that have been fault-finding and bitter and inflexible to the things of God are transformed into one who is accepting of God's Word, one that desires to adjust their life to His ways, and they repent of their stubbornness. This is evidence of a transformed life. I want to end with three points of application for you in thinking about this chapter and what do we, what do, we do with this? And I want this to lead right into our time of reflection. One, I, I want you to embrace the humbling work of God in your life. Again, if you are encircled, you're feeling that right now, embrace the humbling work that He's doing. A second thing, we need to learn to hate anything that creates distance between us and God. Are there things in your life that are, that are distracting you and pulling you away from God or the people of God? You probably should hate that thing. Third, rely upon God's gracious work of sanctification. That work of sanctification, it will be painful. Those trees that are in your life, that forest that is there, it takes work, but the beauty of all of it is that God does the work. And you humble yourself and say, Lord, yes, there's another one. Please take it out. God, there's another stump. Please take it out. And we constantly are looking at, at the field of our heart and say, Lord, there, there's another one. You know it's there. You told me it's there. Take it, please. Why? because we want to be a fertile field full of fruit for the Lord's purposes. Let me give you some time to pray and, and meditate, and then I'm going to pray for us.